0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. What is the connection between education and the economy? For many economists, the connection is found in human capital theory.
1: It was, they called it a revolution in thought. And the idea behind it was essentially simple, that education wasn't just a consumer good, it was an investment. It was an investment in individuals, and it was an investment by society and societal development.
0: My guest today, Professor Steve Klees, thinks human capital theory and rates of return analyses are very problematic.
1: What you have is human capital theory and neoclassical economics are ideologies masking a science. It's, it's absurd to think that there is some way to assess technically the trade-off between higher education and primary education, between education and health and the environment.
0: In our conversation today, Steve talks about his new article, Human Capital and Rates of Return, Brilliant Ideas or Ideological Dead Ends, which can be found in the latest issue of Comparative Education Review. He takes us through human capital theory its internal logical fallacies and proposes a set of alternatives.
1: All we have is a messy, participatory, democratic struggle of individuals and groups with some common interests and some different interests.
0: Steve Cleese is professor of international education policy in the College of Education at the University of Maryland. Steve Cleese, welcome to Fresh Ed.
1: I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: You are an economist by training, uh, but you have spent most of your career in the comparative and international education field. How do economists typically think about or look at education?
1: Um, that's a huge question. Uh, but and And the answer really depends on what kind of economist you're talking about. They're, they're different schools of thought. But the, the main dominant school of thought is called neoclassical economics. And that, I, that neoclassical economics is really about competitive capitalist market systems. And um, within that, uh, education uh, is a very important piece of understanding Education, economics, and development. Um, In particular, neoclassical economists have developed something they call human capital theory that is a framework for understanding education's role in the economy and in society.
0: And how has or how is human capital theory measured? How do we even, how do economists? see human capital
1: well um human capital is a, a late to economics to neoclassical economics neoclassical economics goes back to adam smith and the wealth of nations in the 1700s and the term neoclassical actually uh was coined at the end of the 1800s and it's about how a competitive market system operates um human capital theory wasn't developed till the late 1950s, early 1960s. Prior to human capital theory, you know, economists understood the economy in terms of supply and demand. Did you always see economists talking about supply and demand? Of small companies, small firms, small households competing with each other. And trying to understand how that competition worked what you got out of it how a market system worked prior to human capital theory economists had a lot of underst- a lot of difficulty understanding labor and work labor prior to human capital theory was an anomaly it wasn't something you could talk about in terms of supply and demand it 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 the economists in those days, in the 50s, looked more like sociologists. There was a whole field of labor economics where they studied real-world labor. They studied strikes. They studied unions. They they studied how large firms operated. Um, but education didn't really fit into that structure at all, To that way of thinking. And... They were odd people out in neoclassical economics because they were more like sociologists and they weren't talking about competitive market structures and supply and demand. And human capital changed all that. How so? Well, um, it, it really made economists able to talk and think about education and labor, labor especially, as a commodity, like any other commodity, that's bought and sold on a marketplace, that has a price that's determined by supply and demand in the marketplace. Um, human capital theory developed um, because it, it, it was explaining puzzles, that, that people were trying to understand how economies grew, and they understood that there were more workers and there was more capital investment. But they didn't really have any idea about quality of work. And the whole idea of human capital was that it explained better to neoclassical economists anyway, why some countries grew faster versus slower. It was, it was they called it a revolution in thought. And it, the idea behind it was essentially simple. That education wasn't just a consumer good, It was an investment, it was an investment in individuals and it was an investment by society and societal development.
0: So this, in a sense, it would be that if an individual were to receive uh, education or more education than another, they or he or she would be more productive in an economy uh, and maybe measured through. Income? I mean, is this, is this the way the neoclassical yeah, economists were seeing this?
1: Yeah. Um, they, they looked at two outcomes of um, education in particular. They looked at earnings, and they weren't interested in private benefits as much, that earnings are a benefit to you, income is a benefit to you. But they were interested in, within their framework, earnings as a measure, a proxy for people's productivity, like you said. And so they were trying to get a handle on education's connection to individual productivity. And secondly, uh, education's direct influence on economic growth through gross, its, its effect on gross national product. So you saw starting in the 60s, Lots of studies of the rate of return, they called it, the return on investment to education in terms of earnings as a proxy for productivity and in terms of um, economic growth measured by a gross national product.
0: So based on the rate of return methodology, is, is some education better than other education for, for an economy or for, for an individual's productivity?
1: Yes. Um, I should explain a little bit about rates of return. Um, rates of return are a measure of benefits and costs. I mean, when, in neoclassical economics, the private sector is motivated by profit. Profit is a signal that this, this, this endeavor is valuable. Adam Smith talked about the invisible hand of supply and demand working in the public interest. That's through profits, supposedly representing where people's benefits exceed their costs, where the outcome of whatever you're making, tables or software or whatever, the benefits exceed the costs. And so um, economists were looking for something as an analogous, analogous to that in the public sector. So the idea was to explicitly study the benefits and costs of public sector activities. Whatever field, education, healthcare, environment, transportation, and rate of return is, is a summary measure after you figure out what are all the benefits to an education investment, what are all the costs of that investment. And it's a, it's a summary measure to try and get at Gosh, you know you're making twenty percent on your investment. the The benefits exceed costs by twenty percent, and so that's applied to lots of different types of educational activities and other sector activities. To study the returns to education of various types of vocational education versus academic education, of. Uh, Higher, different levels of education, higher education versus early childhood or primary education, um, different programs of education, um, anything where you can find reasonable monetary measures of outcomes. Sometimes you can't do that. You're just looking at test score differences between different programs, and then economists do a more limited array uh, of what they call cost-effectiveness analysis. But mostly, economists really like to go after cost-benefit analysis because that gives them a metric that they can compare with returns in the private sector. Is this a better investment to take your money out of the private sector, tax it, and put it in education or health care or environmental protection?
0: This this sort of thinking... Um of of cost-benefit analysis of education to an economy. Do you, do you see this as problematic in any way?
1: Yes. Uh, the paper you mentioned that I did, and actually much of my work over the last, I hesitate to say it, 40 years, <laughs> I've been working in this field for a while, has been with the problems of neoclassical economics generally, and more specifically, uh with the internal dynamic the the internal problems with that field that gives you measures like benefit cost studies of rates of return uh, my 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 work has been basically saying that even not taking an, a a critical outside neoclassical economics look which we can talk about and a little bit of a political economy perspective, for example. Um, But even if you take the neoclassical economics perspective, there are so many problems within that framework that, for me, the benefit-cost analysis, rate-of-return type measures just fall apart, that, that they become almost meaningless
0: so how so? I mean, let, let, let's dig into it. Let's, you know, human capital theory, rates of return analyses. Um, if, you, if you're saying that there are problems of the internal logic of neoclassical economics for human capital theory and for rates of return analysis, can you, can you dig more into that? Like, how so? What, what are some examples of this? Um,
1: I don't know whether to start with the details or the broader picture. And um, let me just start with the broader picture because I think then the the problems with the details become clearer. And the broader picture revolves around one central idea of neoclassical economics, and that's the idea of economic efficiency or societal efficiency, They sometimes call it Pareto efficiency after an economist, an Italian economist a century ago called Pareto. Um, And it's a a complex idea uh, that I find completely unsound and unreal. And I'll try and explain the idea briefly, explain why I think it's unsound, and then give you how it manifests itself in this cost-benefit rate of return type studies. Uh, So efficiency is something, you know, it's a common sense concept. So uh, to us, people talk about efficiency of this or that. It's an engineering concept. It's a physics concept of, you know, you can do more with less somehow. But uh, and, and in education, you can talk about it with sensibly, right? Limited ideas of efficiency. Like you can talk about an educational system as inefficient because it has a lot of dropouts, or a lot of people repeating grades, or a lot of people who aren't learning much. So there's a common sense idea of efficiency that makes sense to all of us. And I have no objections to that. It's the economist concept of efficiency that's problematic. And that's not about an individual sector or an individual project as much as it's the overall society is deemed economically efficient. If it operates according to the the assumptions of a very highly competitive market framework, that in its abstract neoclassical economics uh, discussion is called perfect competition, Perfect competition is a competitive system that is so highly competitive that you've got many buyers and many sellers of identical products. That competition, nobody's big, nobody can influence prices, they're all taking prices in the market, they're all small potatoes. Consumers and producers are the two major motivators and movers of the economy. Consumers are just out there maximizing their happiness and producers are just out there maximizing their profits. And if everything functions according to, and and information is perfect, you know everything about everything. If, If you operate according to these simple assumptions, the whole economy is deemed efficient. And what they mean by that is that somehow not only is there no waste the, the, you know, you're, you're doing everything as cheaply as you possibly can, but you've got the right balance of everything, the correct balance of everything. So you're producing the right amount of chairs and tables and movies and hamburgers and software that something there's something called a correct balance, and that's what's efficient in this. And it's completely separable from their other major concept, which is equity or fairness or the distribution of these things. So the distribution is sort of irrelevant to efficiency. You can have an efficient society in which half the people in the world are starving. That can be efficient because efficiency is just about those people who have effective demand, meaning they have money, and they can... Wave that money in the marketplace, and demand goods and services. And so efficiency is really, to economists, about forgetting equity, forgetting distribution. Are we producing as much as possible with the inputs of land, labor, capital, technology that we have? In the theory and in practice, this is just simply absurd okay? There's there's actually, in theory, neoclassical economists have something called second best theory. And second best theory says that if you don't live in the first best world of perfect competition, with all those tight assumptions, unreal, impossible assumptions, but let's say have one monopoly in one sector in which everything else is highly competitive, Second best says, in the second best world, with just one imperfection, you have no idea if the economy is efficient at all. There's no idea if it's close to efficient at all. Because this this framework is so tight that you only get this overall efficiency of the correct balance of things if prices are the accurate signal sending benefit and cost signals to producers that act in the public interests With one price off... All of the prices are affected. So, in 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 practice, efficiency demands, for example, that uh, you have the correct balances, correct balance, the correct in quotes balance, of producing yachts for rich people and rice and beans for poor people. Well, you know that's just a distributional issue to me. That's an equity issue to me. There's no right balance of yachts and rice and beans. There's no right balance of computer software, higher education, early childhood education, nutritional programs, roads building. There's no correct balance of that. And in practice, um, I just th- there's just no vantage point in the sky. That's what this efficiency idea is. Um... Where you could separate what we produce from who gets it. They're all inter- integrally tied in practice. And, and this is what, in practice, they're trying to do with cost benefit analysis and rate and return get an idea of whether something in particular is efficient or not.
0: I mean, it seems, you know, just hearing that, it just makes me think that the theory of the world in neoclassical economics doesn't match the reality that I live in. I mean, certainly people do not have perfect information when it comes to to buying anything. Um, but at the same time, I also think that this separation of equity and distribution from efficiency seems to have actually happened. You know, I mean, the, the world I see today, there seems to be a huge gap between the the rich and the poor, the those eating rice and beans, and those on their yachts.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, the the real world today is um, is very problematic in terms of distribution, as we all know, in terms of equity.
0: How how is this embodied in rates of return?
1: So. The whole efficiency framework is translated into guidelines for the public sector through cost-benefit analysis. And not costs and benefits to private individuals thereafter, they're often costs and benefits to society as a whole, because they want to correct the market to account for all the costs and benefits to society as a whole. if you're thinking about education, you think about the benefits of education. They've got benefits in terms of earnings uh, to an individual. That's a benefit to society if earnings reflect productivity. Um, that's problematic because earnings don't reflect. Earnings are a price, and prices are distorted in real world competi- in real world economies. So there's no reason to believe that earnings reflect productivity at all. Earnings are determined by uh, market power, by the vagaries of who's got skills and who doesn't have skills, on where firms do their business. Um, So uh, the idea of earnings as, as as a proxy for productivity is a problem. Uh, a second problem is that even if you wanted earnings as a proxy for productivity, that's just one individual benefit that is a social benefit because it measures productivity. But there are what they call externalities. There are benefits to other people who are not affected, in, in, who are not included in the market transaction. You decide how much education you're getting, some supplier gives it to you, a public school, a private school, a training program. But the benefits to education go way beyond you. And those are not taken into account in the market. So when there are benefits beyond the individual, they're called externalities because the market doesn't take them into account. And therefore, the market is making inefficient decisions because it's not counting all the benefits. So in education, you can think of lots of benefits that aren't just to you. Your education benefits uh, other people through your coworker productivity, through your family, through household health decisions, through helping your children, through uh, lowering crime rates, through lowering welfare rates. It's got lots of these external effects, and the second problem with rates of return is measuring those or, or... are very problematic. And the third problem with rates of return is that even if we were trusting earnings as a good measure, it's very hard, I would say impossible, to figure out the effect of education on earnings. This goes to our problems, not in neoclassical economics, but our problems with research methods generally. Separating out causes from effect impact evaluation is uh, extremely difficult to the point where I think it can't be done quantitatively. If, If, for example, you took a thousand people and you asked them, what's their income? And then you tried to figure out what are the dozens of factors that make those incomes different? And then you actually tried to build a mathematical model that would separate those dozens of factors so that you could say, well, their income went up because they were in a union this much, because they had another year of education this much, because they were in a high demand field this much, because they were healthy that much. I mean, the, the, it boggles the mind. I, I've done another paper on what economists, a uh, statistical procedure called regression analysis that tries to do that. It tries to take the dozens of factors affecting some outcome and separate them out. And my view is that we just can't do that. So that even the minimal idea of looking at the impact of education on individual earnings is problematic. Taking them all together, I find rates of return uh, and cost-benefit analysis generally not a good basis for decision making.
0: But yet it has been. I mean, it's it's like this. These methods and this this particular theory have have been dominant and have um, been used to make decisions in education systems among other sectors. Um, so, what, so what's the scholarly track record of those using rates of return and human capital theory? I mean, all of the critiques that you put forward seem very plausible to me, but yet rates of return and human capital theory has had quite the long longevity in academic research.
1: Yes, it certainly has. And there's two things to say in response to that. One is you asked about their track record. And in terms of track record, um, there's no testing this, okay? This this isn't (laughs) something you can predict and then find out, was it true? Because it's, I say, the rate of return to expanding higher education is 12% in your country at this time. Is that a good investment? If you decide 12% is a good return, then you put your money in but there's no validation of whether you got 12% or not so this is there, there's there's no there's no track record uh in terms of these predictions i mean they're making predictions now for example about education and gnp and i i just find those scary and absurd there, there's some very interesting uh economists very competent economists doing this uh Eric Hanushek and Ludwig Wosman. And they tried to do regression analysis to say, if your PISA scores go up, the PISA being that international test that people take, as a proxy for cognitive achievement, how much will your GNP go up? And they come to these conclusions like, you know, a, a increase in cognitive skills gives you a 2% boost on GDP. And if everybody moved to standard deviation on PISA, your GNP would grow seven times in the next 30 years. I mean, this uh, this is carrying this framework to an absurdity to me. They can't separate out the impact of education from the dozens and dozens of other factors that influence GDP or GNP, and uh, then to take that out as its influence now and project that 30 or 40 years in the future is just the height of irrational use of a framework of this kind. And I understand why they do it. These are reasonable people. You want good information for decision-making, right? You, 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 and, and to economists, this idea of efficiency, separable from equity, is the touchstone. But the, the real question for me is, the second question you asked is, is basically, why has this framework been dominant for so long? Um, and... Neoclassical economists would say they have a very simple answer. It's because of its explanatory power. It explains differences in investment in health and differences in individual behavior. And it's true. I mean, in differences in individual behavior, this is a useful framework. Uh, because your decisions are affected by the returns to you and you make decisions about your educational investment versus your investment in healthcare, versus your decision to go to a movie or your decision to buy a house about returns to you. And that's fine. So there is some use for this framework in terms of understanding people's motivations. But in terms of societal efficiency and investment preferences, this framework is bankrupt and it's empty. So to me and to many critics, it's not the dominant framework because of its explanatory power it's the dominant framework because it fits human capital theory is embedded in neoclassical economics and that's embedded in capital market in in in, in it fits with a capitalist market economy the critics would argue the reason there's so much attention to efficiency and rates of return and technical v- views of whether you invest in this thing or that, and how much do you do, um, is because uh, it makes sense in terms of efficiency. If you lose that efficiency framework, you realize that you know, this is just a way to support a market system. This is the Neoclassical economics is, a, is a, an ideological justification for uh, capitalist market systems to be efficient, to act in everybody's interests aside from equity. If you question that, uh, then you can see neoclassical economics generally and human capital theory as basically an ideological framework, an ideological bulwark. Um, The whole skills discourse today comes from human capital theory. And the skills discourse... Seems like common sense. It says if people only had better skills, they would be better off and their countries and societies would be better off. That skills discourse, based as it is on human capital theory and neoclassical economics, is very problematic. Some of the people today have talked about the triple economic challenge that we face and they talk about the three things job creation poverty elimination and inequality reduction human capital theory and neoclassical economics generally gives one simplistic answer to all three challenges lack of skills or equivalently the mismatch between what education is producing, and what businesses in the economy need. For the critics, lack of skills is not why people are poor, are not why jobs are scarce, and not why societies are so unequal. The culprit for the critics is that the very structure of the world system in which we are living, capitalism most particularly, Patriarchy, racism, and other structures. Those very structures are problematic. While capitalism has increased our ability to produce material goods tremendously, so it looks very productive in that way. In another sense, it's one of it's 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 it's, it's one of the most um, inefficient and destructive structures that you can imagine. Why? Because almost half the world, I mean the World Bank says 3 billion people are relegated to the margins of society. Capitalism hasn't created jobs for them, livelihoods for them, for the vast majority of our global population. If capitalism was an efficient system, we would be taking advantage of the skills and develop the skills of the 7 billion people on the planet and produce a lot more. Capitalism, in its 200, 300 years, hasn't done that and isn't doing that. Uh, You know, some people talk about we live in a meritocracy. I mean, what nonsense... These 3 billion people are relegated to the margins of society because they're not meritorious? It's not that at all. It's poverty, unemployment, and inequality, not to mention environmental destruction and other problems, are not failures of capitalism, as they're sometimes seen, but they're the logical outcome of its inherent structure. Uh, So that, that in many ways, um, contrary to prevailing economic views, human capital has been a very destructive discourse. This is contrary to what the majority of economists think as it's been brilliant. But it's been a destructive discourse be- because it's really blamed individuals for their lack of skills, their lack of investment in the right skills, the lack of good choices. And so, instead of understanding problematic structures that we need to do something about, uh, we've been directing attention towards the supply of individuals and how to fix that. Uh, And we've been fixing it for decades. And the payoff with poor countries is abysmal, and the payoff even within rich countries is abysmal. The inequalities within the U.S., the level of hunger in the United States, the level of marginalization, the level of poor dead-end jobs, the level of insecurity, the level of environmental destruction. This is not an efficient system.
0: Turning to alternatives, I mean, is it even possible or, or can we even have an education system in a capitalist economy without human capital theory it almost seems like you know many of these problems that we see in education in terms of equity that you were just mentioning stem from the capitalist economic systems that that are pervasive in most countries so how can we uh, envision and create education systems in alternative ways that account for equity while still being in capitalist economies?
1: Yeah. Uh, th- you're, all you're asking today is tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I apologize. <laughs> That's okay. Um, let me preface my response to education with a little bit on um, how these alternatives um, are viewed to the very structures in which we live. Because uh, education can only be successful if it's a part of a challenge to those structures in in fundamental ways. Uh, And uh, there's a lot of alternatives that I... Everything is contested terrain in this world. Uh, Everything is uh, uh, up for grabs, up for debates with different views. So I, I, I view the alternative to neoclassical economics as what I call political economy. Political economy is a contested term and people on the right use it as well as people on the left. I'm using it more from the left-of-center point of view of critics of capitalism, critics of other world system structures. And for me, a political economy perspective today raises questions about the structures of the world system in which we live. It's the intersection of feminist perspectives, of post-perspectives, post-colonial, post-structural, neo-Marxist perspectives, queer theories about uh, heterosexism in society, disability theories, critical race theories. Not that these theories are identical, not that these approaches are identical, but all of them see marginalization as central. And all of them see marginalization not as failures of the world system as much, they're failures for sure, but, not a, but more as a logical consequence of the structures of patriarchy and racism and capitalism in which we live. And while there's agreement that reproduction is pervasive, that is, these, the, the, this marginalization is not an aberration, systems are out there that reproduce and legitimate marginalization and inequality and the education system is part of that as are all of the systems in which we live but the critics the political economists as i label them agree that while reproduction is pervasive there are lots of spaces for, for progressive action we, through individuals exercise through through exercising individual and collective agency okay to to you, you have the ability, and especially collectively, we have the ability to challenge these structures. And collective challenge is perhaps the watchword of, of, neo, of, of political economists. Uh, social movements, like the women's movement, like the civil rights movement, these are worldwide now, like the landless movement. In Brazil, and now other countries, the the poorest people in the world are organized and having an influence on policy. The untouchable movement in India, uh, the alter, not anti-globalization, but the alter-globalization movement, and in human rights movements and the children's rights movement. And so there's lots of examples of contestation at the systemic level and in education. There's lots of examples in every education, in in every world, in every country, and in every school system of what political economists would call more progressive approaches to education. That the legacy of people like Paulo Freire, the uh, famous Brazilian educator who founded a field that we call today critical pedagogy, Critical pedagogy is a political economy-approached education, arguing that while reproduction is pervasive in schools, there's lots of ways to challenge that. And so people, individual teachers challenge that all the time. They close their doors to their classroom. They use different learning materials. They teach their students uh, differently about fairness, about equity, about the structures in which they live, they raise questions on that. And it's not just individual teachers, there are are systems of it. In Brazil, the the landless movement, which I just mentioned, have their own schools that are frarian, that are participatory, that are are so different from the technicist, technical approach to education that we have today throughout the world. There's, in Brazil, something called the citizen school movement that, again, is very participatory, that involves the community. We say community involvement all the time, but this is serious community involvement. This is serious democracy for students, for teachers, for administrators, participating and directing curriculum, directing grading, making decisions at a local level uh, together and... Sometimes very explicitly challenging the types of feeding education into work and into the labor market that dominates so so strongly on, on the alternative, I mean for, for most political economists, when you reject the sort of uh, functionalist view of sociologists, of society, of the efficiency of markets, and say, you know. The, This is not something uh, in which everybody is benefiting. There's conflict here. There's different interests. And uh, the only way that's going to change is through struggle, through individual and collective struggle. Um, What that means in terms of alternative system-wide is difficult to say. I mean, at a minimum, We're we're not a neoliberal form of capitalism. Capitalism in the 60s and 70s was a much more liberal capitalism in which government intervention was recognized as necessary to correct the ills that were essentially built into the structure of capitalism. Neoliberalism, starting in the 80s with Reagan and Thatcher and Kohl in Germany, said government is the problem. The market is the solution. We need to get away from that, okay? We need to restore the legitimacy of government action. We've got the sustainable development goals of the United Nations on the table. Goals that are very ambitious about improving the world. we're not going to get there under neoliberal capitalism. We're not going to get there when we think it's illegitimate for government to direct action. We're not going to get there if everything is a public-private partnership and depends on corporate profitability in, in order to direct that system. Uh, and maybe we have to move beyond capitalism. At the local level, there's lots of alternatives. And, and you know, broadly speaking, it, it's a subject of a whole nother. A conversation, and I have a paper coming out next year on capitalism in education that talks about alternatives. So maybe we'll do another podcast there, but the, the broad answer is you need to build towards a more participatory democracy and more towards a workplace democracy. We have a... a the problem with capitalism is that our workplace is authoritarian. We teach democracy In the political sphere, we don't have a lot of that at a very participatory level either. But we need democracy in the workplace as well.
0: I I mean, it seems like a lot of what you're saying is that we have to think beyond the connection of education as being for the development of human capital. And, And... Having a different value of education and and there can be many it sounds like and and many different ways of achieving those values or putting those values into action. Um, but it seems like that's the first step is is decoupling or, or you know delinking the connection between education and human capital development?
1: No, I, I would agree and um, to, to be fair to human capital theorists. Some of them recognize that broad connection. It, it's, it's gotten narrowed in practice so much that all we're looking at is the connection to education to the workplace. But citizenship is can be subsumed in that human capital framework. The, the problem is it's basis in efficiency you want to talk about the many things education does the many more things we want it to do we don't want to just make education about workplace we don't want to make education just about literacy and numeracy we need education for peace building for people to not be aggressive for people to be fair with each other for for, uh, people to have resilience and uh, people to be creative and uh, so so, there's lots of purposes of education, and human capital theory in practice has just narrowed the field too much. And, and more broadly speaking, um, about this political economy framework versus a, a more mainstream dominant human capital neoclassical framework, um, you know, the political economy framework doesn't offer the technical policy guidance that rates of return give. You know, for for neoclassical economists, policies are a dime a dozen. I mean, you just do your cost-benefit analysis, and this year, vocational education is better than academic education. Higher education is better than primary education. If you reject that framework, what you have is human capital theory and neoclassical economics are our, our ideologies masking a science. It's, it's absurd to think that there is some way to assess technically the trade-off between higher education and primary education, between education and health and the environment. All we have is a messy participatory democratic struggle of individuals and groups with some common interests and some different interests. And, you know, for me, what we have to do is find ways to facilitate that struggle, and in doing so, you know, economics and the the, the dominant scientific perspective says, you know, you need to stay neutral and objective. For me, uh, I've learned that you always take sides, that... When I write a paper, when I teach a class, when I'm doing research, when I engage in policy, when I engage in my life, I always have to take a side. And if, I, if, if you don't think you're taking a side, you are. Because this is a struggle, this is contestation. And I guess the, my concluding point is that, you know, for me, this is what I said in the paper you cited, Neoclassical economics and human capital theory are ideological dead ends. But fortunately for all of us, there are lots of alternatives.
0: Well, Steve Klees, you gave us a lot to think about in this conversation. Thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed, and you're definitely welcome back when that new paper comes out on capitalism and
1: education. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Steve Cleese is professor of international education policy in the College of Education at the University of Maryland. You can find his latest paper on human capital theory in the current issue of Comparative Education Review. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It helps. And please be sure to visit us at FreshEdPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and
1: I'll see you next week.